terror, turmoil, heartbreak. It's a worthy mission because they continue to evacuate uh, folks out of that region, out of the airport. And a race against time. For one South Florida family, a rescue and reunion. He was able to come out of the airport and I got to hug my son for the first time in two years. A school district adopting a policy such as a mask mandate is acting within its discretion. From courtroom to classroom. We will not be pressured by the governor or the State Board of Education. School mandates upheld, but should they? And will they last? Understand what they are doing. I mean, they are thumbing their nose at the rights of parents. The big news of the week, all live, all this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. The frantic rescue from Afghanistan continues against the clock. And we begin today with the South Florida connections. Breaking this morning first, the U.S. reports an airstrike has taken out a vehicle bearing an explosive device, perhaps related to renewed warnings of another imminent terror attack. In the airport, in Kabul, evacuations under deadline. Here at home, increasingly partisan finger pointing into what is going wrong and what is going right. South Florida Congressman Carlos Jimenez is calling for an investigation into the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. He is joining us today from his home. Uh, Congressman, great to have you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you all doing? We're doing well, but of course, I think uh, we are all grieving for the loss of these 13 U.S. military men and women. And I'd like to ask you, take a moment to begin with to express your condolences on this terrible loss of life. Look, the, um, you know, the price of freedom is not free. And, and unfortunately, you know, many young men and women have to give their lives for us to be free. And in this case, those, uh, those servicemen uh, gave their lives to protect the freedom uh, of uh, not only American citizens, but also our Afghan uh, partners and, and allies. And so my heart goes out to them and their families. Um, and, uh, you know, words just can't, uh, can't describe, you know, how I felt when, when I heard about what happened. It was totally predictable and uh, shouldn't have happened. So that's also why it kind of hurts a little bit because really it's something that shouldn't happen. So let's pick up on that, Congressman, if we could. You have called for an investigation, uh, a DOD inspector general investigation, filed a bill. It has three components to it. Uh, one, briefly, why and how much of the U.S. military equipment was left behind and how that happened, uh, evacuation procedures, and also whether Afghan forces uh, may have gone to Iraq with that military equipment. There's nothing in that bill, though, in the call for the investigation that includes maybe the context and the path to what led up to what happened over the past couple of weeks, including negotiations by President Trump with the Taliban that paved the way for the exit. Why, why not put in that breadth and scope as well? Well, because uh, there was nothing that uh, President Biden needed. You know, he didn't need to follow what, what uh, President Trump had done. Obviously, he hasn't followed what President Trump has done in any other instance. And so, you know, as situations change, your plans have to change. This is all on President Biden. This is not, President Trump has nothing to do with this. But the, the withdrawal, the way the withdrawal was done, uh, you don't you don't just, you don't pick up and take your military out and leave all your civilians and thousands of our Afghan partners and allies there to fend for themselves. 
that's crazy. And so, and you just don't pick up in the middle of the night, leave all your bases, leave all your equipment, uh, which is what we did because President Biden put himself in, in a in, an arbitrary deadline date. And by the way, you never tell your opponents what your and your enemy what your deadline is. That's crazy too. So okay? this and is so a the is mission a is over. Okay, when the mission is over, when the mission is over, okay, and that there is no date for that. When the mission is over, then it's over, and then we we leave. Okay. Um, I, again, I don't mean to interrupt. Really tough to have conversations on Skype back and forth without actually being together. But I just wanted to follow up really quickly. Would you, would you advocate, have advocated, that President Biden renegotiated with the Taliban? There's no look. The, the renegotiation aspect. Of, first of all, there were President Trump's negotiations had some conditions. They couldn't move on on provision, provincial capitals. They couldn't. They couldn't uh, be a threat uh, to Americans. Uh, that's what uh, President Trump had negotiated. Uh, President Biden uh, said, okay, I, I want to leave, you know, Afghanistan too. But look, you just don't give a time and you say, we are going to leave when the mission is over. And by the way, our mission is taking all of our citizens and taking all of our Afghan partners and, and allies. And if you want to help us do that, we'll be out of here sooner. Uh, but if not, then we're going to take our time and, and leave. And we're not going to leave $80 billion worth of military equipment for you to have at the end of the day. Um, and we're certainly, when we're leaving, we're not going to have you protecting our perimeter as we leave. Yeah. So those are the things that really drive me up the wall. Any five-year-old would have done it, you know, a better job than this. And so, you know, the, this is all the president and his administration. And from what I understand, you know, the people in the DOD, at least the people in the DOD, from what I've heard, were totally against this this uh, timetable and how and how and the and the method of of this retreat and uh, withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan and the president overruled them all because he wanted to be out by 9/11 and because he wanted to be out by 9/11 it cost these 13 uh, you know servicemen their, their lives and yeah. we don't know if any more are going to be hurt hopefully not we know there's terrorist threats uh, that are, are you know continuing there in uh, in this in this really uh, well, not a well thought out, you know, method of getting up and Yeah. Well, I think we would all agree the sight of the United States uh, trying to get out, get its people out, get the Afghans out, uh, has been humiliating. Haven't seen anything like this since the fall of Saigon, the helicopters lifting off the U.S. Embassy. But having said that, Congressman, uh, most Americans were ready to get out of Afghanistan. They thought 20 sure. years of war was too much. So the issue then really becomes the way the exit has been bungled. Is that it? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, there's bipartisan support that, you know, we needed to, you know, to to leave, you know, Afghanistan. However, you know, we're, I think we're having some second thoughts about leaving entirely and not having some kind of a base. You know, the president makes a lot to do about, we have this over the horizon kind of capability to, uh, to keep us safe. Uh, listen, you're going to have to fly over over uh, Pakistan in order to have any over-the-horizon capability. And he made a lot to do about, you know, getting these two uh, planners that we got, I guess, yesterday. They happen to be right next to uh, to, uh, to Pakistan, which we actually have uh, intelligence assets in Pakistan. However, I am not so sure that, uh, you know, not having any bases at all, uh, any base of operations so that we can we can monitor the situation in Afghanistan. It's going to make America safer. I, I am afraid that one day we may have to go back. Uh, but uh, yeah, there was bipartisan support to get everything out. 
but not this one, uh, not in this fashion, and not in this environment. Look, our allies around the world are livid as uh, uh, they weren't even, you know, uh, consulted in the way and the manner that this uh, that this, you know, withdrawal was, was conducted. And so, yeah, the manner that it was conducted, I'm I'm really upset about it. Uh, I think it was atrocious. It's a it's a dark stain on America. Uh, if we on the Sunday morning, we are speaking with Congressman Carlos Jimenez of Miami. Congressman, July 11th, tens of thousands of Cubans all across the island took to the streets, saying "Libertad, we want freedom." The conditions there are awful. The Biden administration has responded with sanctions uh, against some high-ranking officials. But uh, internet connectivity still is not resumed for the island. Uh, what should the Biden administration be doing now? I think the first thing that we asked them to do was, we know that we have the technology, um, try to restore as much of this internet connectivity or something like an internet connectivity in the island. We want the, the, the people of Cuba to be able to communicate with themselves, and we want them to be able to communicate with the outside world. That'll give them a little bit of protection against this very brutal regime. The regime did what the regime always does. When they have any kind of dissension inside the island, they come down with a hammer, and they really brutalize and, they, and instill fear back to the people. The only way that you can get the people to, uh, to go against them is if they have some way of showing what this regime is doing and then get international pressure against the regime. And so that's the number one thing that we want the Biden administration to do. We also want to make sure that the Biden administration continues to have a strong stance against, you know, Cuba in terms of, uh, yes, sanctions against individuals, sanctions against the regime, making sure the regime doesn't have access to credit, uh, even though the regime has done a real good job of ruining that because they don't pay their bills. Those are the kind of things that we need the Biden administration to do. But right now, since we do have the technology, we need to move on that and see how we can restore that kind of communication uh, ability inside Cuba as soon as possible. Can't wait to hear about that. Congressman Carlos Jimenez, we always appreciate your time. We never have enough time. And uh, <laughs> I invite you to stick around if you can for a couple of minutes and watch our next interview. I think you will be really interested in that too. Thanks again. Thank you. I guess I'm going to have to watch it because I can't watch it through Zoom, but I'll, I'll look okay. at it. Okay. Quick, tune in. <laughs> We're happy that he's home and obviously he can start his schooling and uh, life here in the United States. Well, there are not many good news stories out of Afghanistan these days, but here is one. The scene at the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood Airport yesterday is one of those good news stories. Ten-year-old Noman was in the process of being adopted when the U.S. started to pull out of Afghanistan and that landscape suddenly changed. And in the last weeks, a harrowing ordeal of getting him to his new home in South Florida. And his dad is Bahuddin Mushtaba, a professor at Nova Southeastern University who immigrated from Afghanistan 40 years ago. And he is right there live from his home in Davie. We so appreciate you coming on with us when I bet uh, Noman is still sleeping, is he not? <laughs> He's actually awake. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, this is uh, such an exciting story. Uh, uh, tell us about the harrowing ordeal of getting your 10-year-old son, now your adopted son, uh, out of Afghanistan. How did you do it? 
unfortunately, it was very, very uh, chaotic and very uh, fearful uh, situation. Uh, luckily, with the help of uh, our South Florida adoption agency, that would be adoption by Shepherd Care and also the Frank Adoption Center in South Carolina, as well as our Senator Marco Rubio's office, uh, we got a lot of help. So with everybody's assistance and guidance and help, we were able to encourage uh, Noman to uh, basically get together with another family member uh, who is also an American citizen in Indiana. So he was coming out of Afghanistan. So we uh, asked Noman to go with uh, that family and come out of uh, the country together. The first day when they went to the airport, unfortunately, they were stopped by the Taliban uh, and they were turned around. So they waited for about 14 hours, but they could not get into oh. the airport. Luckily, on the second day, they were able to make it, and I was obviously relieved the fact that they were inside the airport. Give us, if if you can, sort of that firsthand perspective. I'm, I'm sure that he's talked all about it. Being turned away from the airport at that point by Taliban hmm. forces, was that something that was frightening to him? Was he so accustomed to chaos and, and uncertainty that he took that in stride somewhere in between? How, how, did he, how did he see that and feel that? Well, unfortunately, this is one of the circumstances where they get to experience this firsthand. I was actually talking to him this morning uh, about that for the first time. And he said that when they got to the airport, the Taliban did stop them. The Taliban did check for IDs for the adults and the paperwork to make sure they had it before they could even be allowed to go in. But nonetheless, because of the large crowds, he's saying that they were actually uh, releasing bullets. Obviously, they were firing into the sky. And this is the first time he's hearing this uh, within meters. So he's saying it was so loud where they had to close their eyes. I'm, I'm sorry, close their ears uh, because the Taliban were releasing these bullets into the air. Uh, right next to them. So he obviously had not experienced that uh, firsthand that close. And unfortunately, it's traumatic experience. Uh, but nonetheless, that's what they have to go through. And I'm very lucky, obviously, the fact that he got out and he's here. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Professor, so he flew with this family friend, this friend to Qatar and then to Germany and then to Washington. And you met him in Washington. And we have those great pictures of you and uh, Noman arriving in South Florida uh, yesterday. And he met your wife for the first time. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was that was very interesting experience, obviously, because my uh, wife, uh, Lisa, was looking forward to seeing A ruling from a judge in Tallahassee on Friday paved the way for the mass mandates that are imposed by 10 school districts across the state, including Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties. That ruling was a blow to the governor and the Department of Education that had pushed through orders and rules giving parents the final say. And one of those parents backing that right to choice is Robert Rosetto, whose son is a fifth grader in Boca Raton. Mr. Rosetto joins us live. Great to have you aboard. And I may I just say how grateful we are because we, over the past weeks and months, have been inviting parents mm -hmm. and others opposed to the mask mandates. And you, Mr. Rosetto, are the first to accept <laughs> our invitation. So welcome. Well, hello, and thank you for having me. So tell us your concerns. What, as a parent, you obviously would opt out of a mask mandate. Why? Yeah, so um, we originally did opt out of the mask mandate when that choice was given to us, and it has recently been taken away. Um, my son does not enjoy wearing a mask and it makes him feel sick. It makes him feel uncomfortable. 
Um, he's gone to the nurse's office at school feeling lightheaded and nauseous from wearing it. Um, we personally have come to the conclusion that it is not in his best interest, health-wise, both physically or mentally. And quite honestly, we should be given the choice. And so did you take his concerns and your concerns to his pediatrician or your doctor, or did you check with any sort of medical advisor, mostly sure, because you don't want him research. to be sick, obviously? Yeah, no, we've, we've spoken to others and we've done a lot of research. And, you know, today there's a ton of information out there, both real information and misinformation. Um, and at the end of the day, we should be able to draw our own conclusions and do what is in the best interest for our family. Um, not trying to impose, you know, um, not wearing masks for people who do want to. They have the freedom to choose what's best for them and their health. We just want that same choice. Yeah, well, the elected members of the Palm Beach County School Board, and you live within its uh, borders, you know, they've decided that all children and staff members at schools, teachers, should go to school wearing a mask and uh because the greater good, public health, demands that, that it trumps, as it were, personal liberties. I take it that very basic premise is something that you question. Sure. Well, I'm just going to disagree that it's for the greater good. Uh, like I said, we just want the freedom of choice. I'm not here to debate the health of it. I mean, we, we could look at studies and science and on both sides, right? There is there is no 100% concrete, irrefutable science either way. Um, we just want the choice to decide what's best for us. And in our opinion, after doing our research, we decided that it's not to wear a mask. I mean, like, like I said, he feels nauseous and lightheaded wearing it. Why is he being forced to feel sick in order to get an education? All right. Well, again, let me just jump in, Mr. Rossetto. Um, Number one, if you believe that the, there are pathogens, uh, toxins that uh, gather in the mask, I mean, doctors say all that means is that you get a new mask or you wash the one the child is wearing. Uh, the second question I would ask you is uh, the, the governor has made sure and the state education commissioner that any parent who doesn't want to abide by these kinds of rules can ask for a HOPE scholarship voucher and enroll their child in a school where masks are not compulsory. So why don't you do that? Well, again, we, we should be given the, the freedom of choice. He should be able to go to the public school in our district that he's been enrolled in. He's in fifth grade. He's been there since kindergarten. The legal victory for families who sued the governor on behalf of their kids is a victory for the school boards that defied him. And for South Florida's teachers unions that have supported mandatory masks for staff as well as students, the leaders of Miami-Dade's and Broward's teachers unions are with us together. Carla Hernandez-Matz is president of United Teachers of Dade. Anna Fusco heads the Broward Teachers Union, and it's great to have you both. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Nice, nice to be here. Great, great to see you, ladies. Let me begin with sort of one question for both of you. And Carla, uh, answer it first, if you will. When you heard that Judge Cooper Friday had ruled, as he did, that the governor had overstepped his authority, what was your reaction? I was relieved, to be honest with you. This is cer certainly a win for parents, 
for our community, for our education professionals. We've been saying that this is unconstitutional and that this is overreach. And uh, we saw that the judge, you know, um, made a very simple decision and he verified all of those things. Yeah. And Anna Fusco, give me your reaction. I saw your statement, but tell us again, what uh, what do you think about this? Well, I'm happy and I wasn't really surprised because we had um, so many people speak out intelligently and, you know, understanding the Constitution and, you know, realizing that our governor was just making a political stance instead of, uh, you know, realizing we're in a health crisis. So um, it was a, you know, great that our parents stood up and that the judge made this decision. And, you know, we're going to see um, a lot of people relieve that, you know, others have to wear a mask until we can get this under control. Yeah, you bring up something really interesting because there, there are a lot of people who have watched this mask, de mask debate unfold and see sort of a political fight in it. Nevertheless, as you saw in our last segment, if you saw our last segment, you have seen that there are parents, a significant number of parents, who really do believe that their choice would be to send their uh, student to school with no mask for whatever the reason. And uh, Mr. Rosetto in our last segment said that his son felt sick and nauseous in his mask. Carla, there are parents in Miami-Dade and Broward schools who to this day really do feel like that. So it's a very minimal number, and I think that it's very telling that you haven't been able to find parents from Dade and Broward that are willing to speak on this issue. The vast majority of parents care about their children's health and care about the health of others because what they're teaching is collective responsibility. They're teaching that there is fact and there's opinion, which is what we teach in our schools as well. And it's very unfortunate because we know that Facts can be verified, and we know that um, opinions are just beliefs or attitudes that people have. And here we're seeing opinions that are politically laced. We're seeing things that are political propaganda. We're seeing that this is anti-science. It's not factual. It's misinformation. And, um, you know, it's, it's really risking the lives of many. It's something that uh, has us very worried. You know, just this week, there were over 26,000 cases in Florida for children under 12. And here we are fighting for things that are common good. We're trying to save children. We're trying to stay, save our, the employees, our staff, our, you know, our colleagues. And we're having to fight over common sense when we should be responsible. We should be teaching kids um, good attitudes and good ways of being and living in a civilized society. We have rules. And uh, this is about collective responsibility. Yeah. Uh, Anna Fusco, uh, we know that Dr. Vicki Cartwright, the interim superintendent of schools there in Broward, where you are, uh, on Friday said that the compliance with the mask order has been almost universal. Just a handful of kids, you know, have said they didn't want to wear a mask. We only know of the one instance at Fort Lauderdale High School where this Mr. Bauman showed up with his daughter and tried to get her in without a mask. But overall, compliance has been very high. So you must be pleased. Yes, compliance is... If you have joined us late, well, too bad, because you missed a lot of good stuff. But right now, we are talking to Annie, uh, uh, Anna Fusco, the president of the Broward Teachers Union, Carla Hernandez-Matz from uh, United Teachers of Dade. I should point out, just for the record, that the governor is going to appeal the uh, uh, ruling Friday by the judge in Tallahassee. So who knows? This probably is going to wind up before the Florida Supreme Court, which is packed with pro 
uh, DeSantis uh, judges. But for right now, your side has prevailed. Uh, uh, Carla, let me ask you, um, on Friday, uh, Alberto Cavallo said he got the letter from the State Education Commissioner uh, threatening to withhold the salaries of board members who had voted in favor of a mass mandate. Is that really just sort of a moot question now? You know, I think this is just more evidence of how our governor is acting really recklessly right now. This Again, this is about his political posturing uh, and what he's running for. And this is not about the safety of our community or of our kids. When we talk about COVID cases being at, you know, a rising level, how they are right now, and we see that he continues to threaten our school board, uh, our superintendent, our, you know, our, our school board members, we think not only is this dictator-like behavior, um, but we're very concerned because many of my neighbors that come from Venezuela and Cuba and Nicaragua have fled their countries, come to this great nation for a free democracy. And when you see him saying these things and oppressing and saying that they're going to withhold funds because we're doing the right thing, because we're protecting children, it's honestly a baffling. It's, it's reckless behavior. And it's unfortunate that we're seeing this at the cost of children's lives and people's lives because we've lost so many colleagues. Uh, we've seen children get sick. And, you know, we're just fighting for the common good. It's got to be about collective responsibility, and he should not be acting this way. So Miami-Dade and Broward are among, I think the last number was 10 Florida districts and, and among the largest who were defying, prior to this ruling, defying the state law and the orders. Uh, worth it to say for our viewers in Monroe County, Monroe District was complying all along because they do have an opt-out for parents mm -hmm. uh, in their mandate. Uh, the governor and also the attorney general had said something along the lines of uh, at the at the board votes to place these mandates that the law is the law and if you want it changed violating it is not the way to do that is not the lawful way to do that Anna, what what do you think about that well i think you know the law is the law was an executive order from the governor i mean is it a precedent that he's going to set that whenever he just wants to create a law because it's his political stance? Well, just let me point his... out that the, the legislature did pass a parent's bill of rights. I mean, there is a statute. And it's, I understand that, but it seems there's lots of parents' rights out there that are being violated on the other side. So if it's about the parents' rights, then, then he needs to look at the whole picture and that we are in a health crisis, not just in Broward and Dade County or, or in the state of Florida, again, across the country, across the world. So doing this is can be quite harmful and, and, and deadly. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to add that the, the law cannot trump the Constitution. And, you know, the judge was very clear in what he said, that it was unconstitutional what he was doing. And so, you know, and we have been saying that, you know, that there's no checks and balances here because what he's doing is actually violating our, our, our local authority to make decisions based on situations that we're seeing. And, um, you know, one of the things that I like to, you know, see being taught in our schools is that sometimes there are things that are wrong and people have to make brave decisions. And so, you know, uh, kudos to all the superintendents and school boards that made the right decisions. We're going to stand by them. We're going to support them. But we need more Rosa Parks moments just because there's a law that says you got to sit in the back of the bus or there's a law that says that slavery should exist does not make it right. And then there are people that are very brave and courageous that step up 
and make the changes that are necessary. We need more Rosa Parks moments in this community. I think Dr. Rosalind Osgood, the chair, the board chair in Broward, called it good trouble. She got that from yes. somewhere? Yeah, from John, John Lewis. Lewis. John Lewis. Yeah, yeah. Good, good trouble. Yeah, um, Anna, let me ask you, how many of the teachers in Broward County uh, are vaccinated? Are they all vaccinated? And should they be? Well, I, I could give you a good answer on that because we actually did a survey these past two weeks out of our um, 14,000 educators, which I, I surveyed non-members and members, and we had a little over uh, 7,200 respond. And out of 7,200 that responded, 89% said they were vaccinated. And we've done two um, vaccine drives. We did one last week at the Coral Square Mall, and we did one actually here yesterday at our union hall. And um, both times we had a, a little over 100 come in. So I believe that um, we have a really, really high amount yeah. that are vaccinated and the ones that are still uh, may have been uh, uncertain or finally getting that clearance from their medical doctor are getting vaccinated. So we see a lot of people wanting to do their part to yeah. help with good. this. Good, concern. good. And Carla, what about what about Miami-Dade? How many teachers yeah. in Miami-Dade are vaccinated? So we did a similar survey a few weeks ago, and we found that now we have about 85% of our teachers or education professionals in general have been vaccinated, which is on par to what the American Federation of Teachers is saying, that nationwide, about 85% of our education professionals are vaccinated. So we're right on the mark. Carla Hernandez, Matt, Anna Fusco, the presidents of the teachers' unions. Thank you so much for being with us today. Remember, we are online 24-7 at local10.com. And remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Have a great Sunday.